Well, hello, folks, and welcome to another edition of Missouri Farm Bureau's podcast, Digging In. I am your host uh, this week, Garrett Hawkins. Thrilled to serve as your president and just love, actually, the chance to, to be able to be a part of this podcast and and deliver you content from just tremendous leaders that we have the chance to visit with as a part of this production. This week, I, I'm joined by a longtime friend of Missouri agriculture, uh, USDA's chief economist, Dr. Seth Meyer. So, Seth, welcome to your first uh, go-round with Digging In. How are things going? It, it's going great. And I'm coming to you from Columbia, Missouri, so I'm I'm even more happy than usual. So, it's great. I would be happy to not being in the beltway. So that's that's good, Seth. And and certainly I guess I would argue that every chance you get to be back in Missouri keeps you closer to uh to the folks on the ground and to the pulse as to as to what's happening, right? No, absolutely. I, I, I do appreciate when farm bureaus come in or when farm groups come into DC. Always love it. Talk to Iowa, Nebraska, Indiana, all within the last couple of weeks. Um, but there's no substitute for getting back here to the Midwest either. <laughs> That's right. So clearly combines are rolling. Um, you know, I, I tell you, it's been a challenging one, you know, here in Missouri. But I'm really curious, Seth, what you're hearing as harvest really rolls across the country um, and here in the Midwest. I can certainly share with you uh, what I'm hearing at county annual meetings, but I'd love for you to give kind of a macroeconomic landscape. What what's happening out there? So in a general, so in a very broad sense, I think the first thing we start with is, you know, we can go back to the latest reports and say, you know, uh, you know, a below trend year for corn and soybeans across the country and the crop had challenges the whole year. And those challenges tend to accumulate, right? So it isn't that USDA, you know, parcels in a yield change. That's not what happens. It's that the crop tends to, you know, the, those, let's call them an accumulation of problems. So I don't think the yield was such a surprise. I do think the area for corn and soybeans, for instance, is what caught the market by surprise. Um, so, so I think that, uh, you know, maybe we had a few more challenges spread around the country and getting some of those crops in earlier in the year. Uh, I think the market, uh, which had come down from some of its wartime highs and seemed to be drifting lower, took that area change and said, hey, maybe this is going to, this uncertainty is going to last a bit longer. Um, you know, I, I joke and I go around, I talk to a lot of farm groups and I say, you know, this has been, I'm a procrastinator. And given all the uncertainty, uh, I never do a presentation far in advance of talking to folks. We just have tremendous uncertainty. And, and, and I'm not sure we're going to solve that in the next 12 months. You're right. So, you know, this anecdotally here, West Central, you know, we have been limping by, you know, getting just enough rain. Uh, I think, you know, corn yields are kind of going to be all over the board, depending on when the crop uh, got in the ground and and when pollination hit. Uh, but a lot of folks are concerned about late beans. You know, normally when we would start to see a little bit more rain coming, kind of right around the state fair after, we didn't we didn't do that. So all of a sudden, especially you know, fall pastures here aren't looking great at all. So the drought continues to to persist for some of us. I know others uh, have gotten some relief, but certainly it, it it's challenging, and folks are a little bit on edge as we as we head into harvest just to see what the yield will turn out. 
Well, and, and, I, and I think the continued volatility that we see in output prices and incredible volatility on the input side too, only adds to that anxiety, right? You're harvesting, the, you're getting out there, you're starting to harvest this, this crop, you're already turned in your mind to the next crop. Uh, you know, in Northern Missouri, you're thinking about opportunities for fall fertilization versus split application. And, and I just, you know, fertilizer prices are you maybe you benefited earlier from being able to you had bought a little ahead so maybe you didn't buy all your needs at the peak but those prices are still pretty darn strong and so i think we've got a lot of volatility on both sides of the balance sheet and uh that that i i think that's an anxiety producer and i'm and and, and as i told you i'm not sure we're going to solve that over the next 12 months because we continue to have hiccups on the production side more dynamic battlefield in ukraine and and issues like that so why don't you, since you mentioned Ukraine, you know, again, since you're monitoring the global marketplace, um, you know, how do you see things? What, what are you starting to see? You know, so early on, uh, clearly the Ukrainians were, uh, from a Ukrainian producer standpoint, it, it would be, how do I want to say this? I think it'd be the equivalent of being in uh, Northeast Missouri and having usually put your grain on the Mississippi River and now having to think about you know, training it out to the Pacific Northwest in order to, 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 to move it. I think that that was early on the result of the war. You know, we had all the Black Sea ports closed. They were trying to move that grain out. You know, they were lucky if they could achieve uh, a couple million metric tons a month. Normally, pre-war, they might do five to seven million metric tons a month. Um, so it was a real challenge for them. I think the opening of the ports on the Black Sea, a limited number of ports, helped improve that. But we're still talking on the order of 3 million metric tons a month versus 5 to 7 million metric tons a month. So I, I think Ukrainian producers made a Herculean effort to get that crop in, and they'll have to make a Herculean effort to get it back out. But I think that at 3 million metric tons, that doesn't solve their storage issue come fall and their ability yeah. to move that crop. So I think that, and, and now we've seen um, what we had kind of, become a more static battlefield, become much more dynamic, which means we're moving, we're, there's a lot more movement going on. So I think from the Ukrainian standpoint, um, unless there's a solution which moves that grain more efficiently, they're going to have to rationalize production internally, right? I'm going to produce what I can consume domestically and this more challenging export environment. And again, that means that, that it is difficult to see that grain all returning to the market in who knows, but in any short term issue, it seems difficult to see all that Ukrainian grain returning to the market. So mentioning just movement of grain kind of reminds me, you know, the last few weeks, a lot of folks were talking about a potential rail strike. I mean, the press were ringing our phones talking about, okay, what would happen? What would happen if, if this, and so, you see what's happening in Ukraine, and again, the, so unfortunate. And and you're talking about grain movement, and then here, and then here, you think about just another circumstance that was potentially looming and appears to be averted, right? Or, or have you heard anything of recent? Are things continuing to progress in a positive fashion? I think we're progressing in a positive fashion, but I have to tell you, we had a lot of meetings. So, so you're talking about the press ringing your phone. Had a lot of meetings, USDA, and, and again, I'm, I'm the person that gets involved in saying, hey, what does this look like? You know, not, not any of the, 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 the negotiation parts of this, 
But I have to tell you, I was I am struck by all the folks that rely on rail who use grain, who use rail to either bring in product or bring out product, how little of a window they have in order to make those movements. You know, you think about, um, you know, and and maybe uh, maybe they can get the grain in, maybe a Midwest ethanol producer, they can still get the grain in, they're bringing it, bringing it in by truck, but they only have three days worth of storage before they have to shut down because they got to take the ethanol out. Um, you might have a baker someplace that brings in flour by train and they maybe have two days worth of supply before they have to shut down bakery products. Or even the livestock folks are saying, hey, uh, 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 co-product production, byproduct production all goes out by train. And after three days, we got to find a different way to move this or we got to stop slaughtering animals. And so I was just struck by how... Uh, uh, little window there is for those kinds of disruptions on a large scale. Wow, that that's really helpful, really helpful for folks to understand. Because you know we, you know we kept trying to figure out what what's the best way to to explain the on the ground impacts, but it's not just a a pumping of the brakes; it's a <laughs> full stop in some instances with with the situation that you described. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I well, mean, at and, least. And he, Go ahead. And, and even, you know, let's bring this back to other products. Let's say I'm making food products and I use a lot of HFCS. That stuff all comes by train too. And so you got folks that maybe can't get their HFCS delivered by rail. And then you got a wet mill that says, may say, I can get all the grain I want, but I got no place to put all this HFCS that I'm making. So, and then you back up the next step from there as well too. Maybe you can't get your packaging. I mean, there. so it was amazing the narrow window before when you think about it a broad scale how folks were saying after a few days this starts to become a challenge okay so from there i i'd like to seth talk we're kind of already dancing and, and talking about the the food supply chain uh, at least segments you know people as i travel around the state people continue to talk about just food costs and how how uh, how to stretch the food dollar. Um, and, you know, it's hard to pick up a newspaper or anything. And people are talking about food costs. So what do you see as chief economist? Uh, clearly, you all are talking about this. Oh, no, absolutely. Talking about this pretty intensely. And, and, and you know, um, and with folks that maybe don't have the same sense of agriculture that we do at USDA. So talking to the rest of government and trying to explain to them kind of how agriculture in the U.S. fits into prices at the grocery store. And I think it is also worth talking about the fact that agriculture fits in differently in the developing world. But we can set that aside now. And I'm going to okay. talk a lot about the U.S. market. And then, But I think we've got to talk about the importance of U.S agricultural production and supplying global food security. I think we shouldn't, oh, we, should, I, we should mention that, I want to go let's start domestically <laughs> first. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, when we look at inflation, this is, we've had, you know, what kicked off inflation in 2021 was actually things like uh, proteins, meat, poultry, dairy, uh, beef. Uh, you know, we saw, uh, uh, and those things, when you have a farm level shock, tends to tend to transmit more quickly into retail prices, right? Farmers get a bit more of a share of the retail dollar on beef than they certainly do on corn, soybeans, and wheat. 
Um, so some of the early inflation was very focused on these, these things related to meat production that tends to transmit pretty quickly into food price inflation. But what we have seen was that, that it went from those products to basically every food product in term, and so all kinds of food products. And, and you and I have probably talked about this, that the, the, from the food dollar standpoint at USDA, farmers only get 16 cents on the dollar of, of, yes. what, uh, of what a consumer spends, right? And so, yeah, these things are important in the price of food, but there's a lot of other things. So what we saw is in terms of supply chains and other issues, we saw what started pretty strongly in the proteins actually broaden and strengthen into packaged products and bakery items and a lot of other food products. Um, and, and I think as we've gone and, and packaged products showing particular strength. So things like any, anything you can think of packaged crackers, ketchup, all of these things where I think that the initial jump in commodity prices put some upward pressure those retail prices, those those kind of wholesale retail prices for packaged goods tend to be sticky, so they don't like to raise them. But when they raise them, they try and catch up on all of those uh, I, those increasing costs. And so, I, I think that that's kind of there's a lag, right? They see their input prices rise, and it, they'll they'll wait a little bit, and then they'll make the jump. And so you'll see the grocers say, "Hey, we're going to have to put all these costs into the price of this retail food," and that's I think what we've seen over the last several months. Okay. Where's the relief in sight for folks? <laughs> well, and it's a funny, I, I know, I mean, this could be a discussion only an economist could love, right? Which is um, when one looks at inflation, you go, well, inflation may slow simply because now we had such high inflation a year ago, right? So you've got this moving window where where we already had a big increase and it drops off from the calculation and you put another big increase in and the number doesn't change much. But I think it remains a big challenge in terms of the supply chain hiccups. If, if I, I do think that um, maybe, maybe we're approaching, you know, somewhere around here in this neighborhood, just because of the quote base effects that inflation slows. Um, but I tell you, I get tired of trying to call when that tip top is. There's a and there's a lot that goes on the beyond the farm gate that somebody who studies agriculture doesn't uh, doesn't have as keen of an insight into those things. Okay, well, let, let's let's move your keen insight then to the global marketplace, and you know, folks talking about potential for famine in some countries that are always teetering uh, on the brink. Um, I mean, driven by obviously the war in Ukraine, but there are other factors that are playing into it as well. So what, what are you seeing at the global level? So, so you're right. I mean, we've got the man-made things like conflict and Ukraine being an example of that or local conflict in these really food insecure countries. I think it's important, you know, you and I talk about the fact that the farmer gets 16, like we said, 16 cents on the dollar in the U.S. Consumers in the developing world are much more closely tied to the price of wheat, to the price, you know, so, so, you know, in wheat flour as a consumption. So when wheat prices go up strongly, they see it here in the U.S. Uh, I think it's like between four and six cents on the dollar for a loaf of bread. There, it's obviously much closer. So food security really is a commodity price issue for them. So we've had, uh, we, 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 you know, we kicked off this phase of commodity prices with strong demand. We had some short crops. 
We've got war in Ukraine and Ukraine had been supplying the World Food Program. So I get I think we get to the point where there is enough, you know, let the markets work at the global level. There are enough commodities, but you got to recognize and be pragmatic about some of these uh, least food secure countries. You need food aid. And, and so I think, you know, trying to interfere with the markets and you see other countries putting export controls on and, and adding volatility to the market. I think that's the absolute worst response. But I think you also have to be pragmatic for some of these least developed countries. Uh, when we talk about affordability and that there's wheat out there to buy, they simply can't buy it, right? They simply can't. It's expensive. And then think about the strength of the dollar. Globally, all these commodities priced in dollars. And when their currency is weak, um, it makes it even seem that much more expensive. So we go back to 2008 and 2010 when we kind of last had the world attention on this. The dollar is much stronger than it was at that point. So we've got this kind of uh, intersection of all of these forces. So I think we both have to think about, you know, good market function at a global level and not doing unhelpful things like export controls. And at the same time, we'd be real pragmatic about those folks who just can't, they don't have the money to buy it. So let's think about food aid uh, in the most pragmatic way for, for that limited set of people. Dr. Meyer, I really appreciate your uh, insight there in reference to food aid. You know, Farm Bureau has long been a strong proponent uh, of food aid, and obviously members of our delegation have been as well through the years. When you think of the late Congressman Bill Emerson and then Joanne Emerson during her time in Congress, and certainly, you know, our members have always had the perspective that, you know, their generosity um, is shown through food aid when we're actually able to provide U.S. commodities to those who are most in need around the world. So certainly appreciate um, you providing a global perspective as to what's happening. And I guess we'll see what plays out over the next few weeks and, and months. So I want to maybe uh, talk just a little policy. Uh, last week, I had the chance to testify before the House Ag Committee uh, as they were holding kind of a, a farm bill focused hearing, but looking at broadband and, and changes that may need to be made as they look at reauthorization. So just curious, you know, Dr. Meyer, what type of conversations are happening within USDA in anticipation of the farm bill? Now, I'm not saying that you all don't have a lot on your plate already. <laughs> There's a lot on your plate, but anytime within USDA, when you come up on a, a time to reauthorize the farm bill. There are discussions. Are you all going to put anything out or are you going to be here to just help Congress when needed? So I think in the in the office of the chief economist, we're in kind of a, a unique position here, right? We're not we're not policymakers. But at the same time, interestingly, um, uh, Congress provides us some funding in order to be standby and 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 work with some policy research centers to provide that kind of input to Congress as well too. One of them being right here in Missouri, uh, the Food and Agricultural Policy Research Institute at the University of Missouri. So we tend to do cooperative agreements with those policy centers and say, let's be prepared to answer those kinds of farm bill questions in our lane in the Office of the Chief Economist, which tend to be things, you know, very at the farm level and less so at in things like SNAP. And so when we prepare, we, you know, we're trying to prepare ourselves for those questions on the farm bill that are starting to bubble up. And you hear them, you hear folks' conversations saying, hey, what we're, 
which recognize this volatility in both input and output prices and say, hey, are there, are there ways to address volatility on input prices? Is there a historical context for this? So you hear this kind of chatter going on and we are preparing ourselves to be able to be responsive through our cooperation with place people, people like the University of Missouri. Okay, well, that, that's very helpful. That is a good reminder for our members um, as to the role of the chief economist and how you access additional insight uh, through um, institutions like FAPRI around the country. Um, you know, certainly they are a tremendous resource that we rely upon a lot. Uh, well, and, lot. And, and, it's, and it may be worth telling your, 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 your listeners too that you know, the chief economist in many other agencies at USDA is a political appointee, right? And so I'm not a political appointee. So I'm, I'm unpopular twice. I'm not a political appointee and I'm, I'm an economist. Both of those things tend to make you unpopular in government. So, you know, we're very <laughs> much, hey, here's what the numbers are. Here's how this here's here's how this works. If you pull this lever, this is likely to be the result. So what we do in thinking about the farm bill is saying, what are all these levers that folks are, 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 are discussing? Let's figure out how we think that that system will respond and let's be able to respond to inquiries that we get through our cooperative association with Missouri. Okay. So maybe as, as we kind of wrap up this conversation, Dr. Meyer, you know, as I travel around the state, obviously, you know, we're in the height of county annual meeting season. County Farm Bureau members are taking time to discuss policies that they want to put into our hopper, so to speak, for our resolutions process. Our state resolutions committee will be meeting again in October uh, in advance of um, presenting a set of policy recommendations to uh, the delegate body in December of our annual meeting. So a lot going on, but clearly as I travel around the state, the, the common themes are inflation, food costs, input costs, uh, obviously just energy, what's happening within the uh, energy policy space. You know, give me give me the positive news that, you know, I, I always look for the nuggets of positivity that I can share in the countryside. You know, one of them being, American Foods Group deciding to, to make a significant investment, an $800 million beef processing plant in Eastern Missouri. And I keep trying to remind folks that, you know what, we've got a lot of great things happening and a lot of investment happening in agriculture. So that's one nugget that I share as I hear these other concerns. So I'm going to pitch it to you. Help me. What are some other nuggets and glimmers of hope that you want that we can share with our farmers and ranchers? So, I, well, I think some of it is, I think we're, we're, we're going to, I think prices are likely to stay elevated for a while. Um, so I think that there are still good opportunities potentially to make good returns, although the volatility is going to make producers incredibly uncertain. I will tell you that uh, if, if you think more broadly, you were talking about uh, domestic meat processing. Um, when we look at our export picture, you know, we've we've had uh, once we kind of uh, entered into this return to this phase one agreement with China. Now, have they hit every target? They haven't hit every target. Have they come back into the world market? Yes, they have. Have our trading partners in Canada and Mexico been solid demanders of U.S. agricultural products? They have. So when you look at our export picture, um, you know, we're hitting records for value of U.S. agricultural exports. And to be quite honest with you, for some commodities like beef or sorghum, if we had them to sell, we could probably even sell more, right? And so I think one of the good things is, is demand so far on the export side 
looks pretty good. I, I, I feel like I'm adding more uncertainty to you on this. And you know, when we talk about macroeconomics, you know, where does demand head from this? You know, I'm 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 hopeful that we continue to see demand kind of cruise along because it's been a good support. And again, we could sell more beef overseas. I think if 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 we kind of weren't in the contraction phase of the cattle market, um, and yet still we're getting good levels of exports. Okay, there's one nugget. <laughs> um, you know, so I, I thought maybe you were going to head in a slightly different direction. So let me throw that 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 out there. So you know, I, I think these issues of input and output prices are clearly front of mind for all your producers. As you all think about, well, what else? You know, you got to be. You, but you got to be thinking about everything which could impact your operation. And so one of the things I, I do think is some of this, you know, I think continue to, for the ag sector to keep its eye on these issues related to climate and make sure that folks understand ag's, ag producers view of these issues. Right. Um, you know, we've got it, I think we could probably sit down with uh, Missouri producers and talk for hours about climate smart commodity programs, right? And um, from an economist's view, I tend to think about these climate smart commodity programs as being like um, trying to establish what number two yellow corn is, right? You know what number two yellow is. I know what number two yellow is. When I say I'm gonna sell you a load of number two, we know what that means. So, so I think one of the interesting things for me as an economist that comes out of this is trying to establish what number two yellow is and trying to facilitate those markets in a way that isn't dictated, but is voluntary, right? You, The fact that we both understand what number two yellow is facilitates trade in corn. Can we agree on yes. what these products are and what they actually do? And does that facilitate consumers' demands translating into producers' returns on the other end. So um, I think producers need to, to continue to monitor this and make sure that these systems work for them and that the other side of the equation understands what this really means for producers. I appreciate you you mentioning this. I mean, we are being very active in this space and trying to make sure that we are advocating for you know, we talk a lot about common sense conservation, right? Like we don't have to overthink this. There are there are a whole suite of tools that we could probably add to the toolbox to help us do even better that provide a whole host of environmental benefits. I mean, you get it. I mean, climate has been politicized and clearly I hear that every day uh, as I travel the state. But what producers do know is we want to do better. We want to continue to innovate and and take advantage of the best technologies and do more in the conservation space. So, you know, this is a, a careful needle to thread uh, as we have these conversations about making sure that the opportunities are there for our folks to, um, you know, we even had, so for instance, at commodity conference in August, Seth, we had, uh, I'm trying to remember if we had four innovators there that are connected to BioSTL and they're looking for an audience to, essentially through the early adopter program that, that we're partnering with BioSTL and they want to partner with farmers to test some of these new technologies. And it looks like I may be able to even test one on our farm. And so, but 
making sure that the, the right suite of policies are in place that don't hamstring us, but that continue to give us the freedom to operate and in fact, put more tools in the toolbox. You know, and when we talk about climate smart commodities, what what I don't want is a, a new de facto standard out there that essentially penalizes some. Uh, what I want to see is premiums uh, for people doing more. I don't want to see it go the other way. Does that make sense? Yeah, and, and I think that from a, right, create opportunities for producers to say, this person will pay me the premium to do this practice. We at USDA saying, hey, here's what it means in terms of uh, the benefits. So I think there's a lot in these climate smart commodities about measurement. Is it yeah. really effective? Is this practice really effective? And if so, how can you link the folks that want to pay extra for this to happen with the producer that says, yeah, yeah, I can do that. But I think it does require that the producers, to your point about all the things that are on producers' plate, unfortunately, I think I'd have to add this along with output and input prices, right? So they have a lot on their plate to think about when you all come into policies. But I think now's the time to do it. I think if we think about the U.S. view of agriculture, and I'm going to take this beyond even, you know, regionally or in the U.S., um, Europeans have taken a very different view of productivity than we have in the, in, in, in the past, right? And I think that when we think about global food security, I think it's important for us in U.S. agriculture and, and, and think about this saying, hey, productivity is one of the ways forward on all of these issues. It's a way forward on food security. It's a way forward on environmental issues. Can we get more from the land that we're using now instead of expand? Um, and so we think about, you know, one of the things that uh, goes on in my office is the sustainable productivity gains, gains in productivity. Um, and when you have sustainable and sustainability means not only from a climate standpoint, from but from an economic standpoint, you can put these things out. But if producers can't make money doing it, it is by definition not sustainable. So I, I do think now's a good time for us to kind of poke at the Europeans and say, hey, this technology application, this solves all these problems in you, that, you, that you're marking off. You win the prize. I think you've done really well at capturing uh, the opportunity and the challenge that we have in this space. And I appreciate you bringing it back to the global standpoint, too, that you know, we can be the model. I mean, we are, clearly we are the model when it comes to productivity, efficiency, and we believe we have a great story to tell and the data to back it up. But how, how do we continue to advocate for technology and continued innovation in this space instead of going backwards? We can do it all, but it takes technology and innovation. Um, anyway, you're getting me all wound up and I know we're about <laughs> out of so. <laughs> well, well, well you, you can always book me and we can talk again for part two. Okay, well, we can do that. Well, Dr. Myers, certainly appreciate uh, you taking time to talk everything from commodity markets to climate and everything in between. We've covered a lot of ground and certainly we appreciate your leadership and the role that you're in at USDA. It's great to have a Missourian uh, as the chief economist and just thanks for always being accessible. And our farmers and ranchers uh, have known that for a while through your role with FAPRI and we're proud of you. So, so thank you for being a part of your first uh, of what will hopefully be several uh, podcasts with Missouri Farm Bureau. 
So with that, uh, folks, thanks for listening this week, and we'll look forward to catching up with you again soon. This is Garrett Hawkins signing off of Digging In. Take care. <laughs>